Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Hi, and welcome to Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Simon Spencer, and today we're talking about banking as a service, otherwise known as BAS. I had the opportunity late last year while attending the Singapore FinTech Festival to meet our guest today, Sachin Sharma, and I'm very excited to have Sachin on the show today. Chief Product and Commercial Officer at Audax, a banking as a service business launched out of Standard Chartered Ventures in September last year. He has had a 17-year career at Standard Chartered before working on Audax. He led product portfolios across lending and deposits at the bank. Thank you for joining us today, Sachin. Well, thank you for having me, Simon. So tell us about Nexus, and which was an earlier version of Audax, um, and how it's established at Standard Chartered and what it did for the bank. So Simon, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, I have been a listener of the original Breaking Banks, and uh, thank you for bringing this excellent content now to APAC. Uh, let me start with the origin of Nexus, as you asked, right? Nexus is the banking as a service business of Standard Chartered Bank. It's a balance sheet business, which, as you correctly said, was established as an early format of what Audax is now. The uh, origin essentially is around the uh, primary issue for retail banks having to acquire new customers at acquisition costs which are becoming untenable. So that was really the original problem that we were struggling with. And this was way back in 2017. One of the clear ways of solving for the cost of acquisition was to be able to partner with large digital ecosystems like e-commerce companies, like ride hailing, even social media, which was uh, acquiring millions of customers. And at the same time, looking to monetize these customers into other services. So we saw this clearly as an opportunity that if we are, as a bank, if we are able to partner with these companies and offer financial services which are embedded into their user journeys, it's likely to be a win-win-win situation for everyone. And that was essentially the the genesis of Nexus. Uh, This is an idea which we took to the global chief executive officer of Standard Chartered, uh, Bill Winters. He was very supportive and he essentially got the ball rolling within the bank. We uh, then found an incubation space in Standard Chartered Ventures, which is an internal team or internal organization within the large bank incubating great ideas like Nexus or banking as a service. And I think the last part of your question was, what has it done for the bank? So when we started the journey, we we really did not realize how much we will uh, build and how much change we will be able to bring to the bank. 
as of uh, 2024, as we are starting out, this uh, capability has been launched in two of the bank's markets. The first market, which is uh, publicly launched, is uh, Indonesia. Thanks to the Nexus uh, solution and the partnership that the bank has done with uh, Bukalapak, a, a large Indonesian e-commerce company, uh, the number of retail customers has gone in, gone up several times of what it was before Nexus. It's become the primary source of uh, new-to-bank customers, both for lending as well as deposits. And very importantly, the bank has a completely new uh, forward-looking technology stack deployed in these markets, which can be extended to more partners and to several other use cases, even beyond banking as a service. I'm keen to get into the capabilities of the platform, but before we go there, um, what was the main trigger for it to be spun off as a standalone entity? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the capability that we ended up developing for Standard Chartered Bank, uh, which, uh, of course, is going to be utilized um, across different use cases, across different markets, is not solving a problem uniquely for Standard Chartered only. So we clearly saw this opportunity to take this to other markets and other banks as well, because cost of acquisition and even cost of maintenance and running the platform is not a problem which is unique to Standard Chartered. Uh, we see this across markets. We see this across retail banks. And therefore, uh, it was a clear opportunity to offer this to other, other banks and financial institutions and solve the same problem for them. Um, uh, and of course, uh, this business model itself is transformative. Yep. We also see that there are not too many organizations which are able to do this end to end in terms of getting the right technology, the right governance, the experience of implementing it. So uh, we thought this is a very unique position to be in. And this is something that can benefit uh, the larger ecosystem, not just one bank. Which, which actually takes me very nicely to my next question, which is, can you take a moment and give me a back-of-a-napkin analysis on how a bank-as-a-service solution, such as Audax, stacks up against a bank just building on what they have or maybe standing up a shiny new platform from one of the several core banking platform providers? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and it comes up uh, quite a bit on the conversations that we have with the various FIs that we are engaging with uh, the short answer is uh, you are looking at a much uh, faster break uh, even and a much more attractive five and seven year uh, ROI if you work with Audax versus trying to build it yourself. Okay? Mm. So, and I'll break that down for you. So imagine you have, uh, you know, you are a property developer and you have this really, uh, uh, well-placed piece of real estate and you want to bring up a four-story building for a specific use case you want to give it out to a let's say a technology company right now you can lay it brick by brick it'll take you about two or you know three years maybe you will see a lot of problems in in uh, in realizing you know, as you go forward and realizing that you know the the material is not available the labor is not available. There are regulations that you haven't thought of. Um, so that's one route. But it's it's your effort. Every brick is your own IP. The other uh, would be that you get a 
bunch of contractors who have prefabricated various uh, pieces of the building. That is still going to take you time, right? It's going to take you maybe a shorter time, maybe two years or maybe 18 months. Uh, but again, you have to deal with a whole lot of different contractors and you have to you have to learn a lot of things as you're uh, even if you're working with prefabricated material or you come to Audax where, let's say, 90 percent of the building is is already ready. So you come in place and it is custom built to the use case that you had in mind, which is in this case might be banking as a service or launching a new digital banking brand. Um, and you are working with a team which has done this before several times and has pioneered some of the capability that uh, that never existed before. So uh, you put up this building in, in six months' time. You get all the regulatory approvals, working with the people who have done all these regulatory approvals before. And you go to market within seven months versus taking three years to do the same thing. So that's really... Uh, an analogy in, in which we can you know explain how it really works even for building this technology stack. You can build it yourself, you can work with 50 different uh, vendors, or you can come to Audax, which has this end-to-end -end capability with all the knowledge and experience of delivering it. So, so speed and maturity of the solution, you know, it's already a mature solution on day one. Um, and then potentially feature set as well, and sort of the uh, some of the legacies that you've managed to to fix. Um, having worked in core banking for a fair chunk of my career, many of organisations they they struggle to to address those core banking problems and end up just endlessly building and patching and extending what what they currently have. And it does become a, a sort of a a significant straitjacket for any kind of innovation. Oh, absolutely. I think the first thing that we need to recognize in this conversation, and I know a lot of uh, financial services executives will be listening into this conversation. It is, it is about technology, but more than technology, it is about getting ready for the emerging business models that are inevitable in the financial uh, industry, which is embedded finance. Customers are now flocking to uh, digital experiences. In, in Indonesia, the first market that we went live in, by 2025, by 10% of all retail transactions, the gross market value, will be digital. This is an incredible number, which means that not just digital transactions are growing at a very rapid pace, but they have become a very meaningful percentage of your overall GDP. You cannot ignore that as a financial institution. You cannot expect uh, the next wave of valuable customers to continue to walk into your branches or even continue to use your channels like internet banking and mobile banking. They need their financial services where the transaction is happening. And that's happening on e-commerce, it's happening on ride hailing, it's happening on travel sites, uh, and you gotta be there if you want that customer. So I think the first thing is about the business model itself. And the second thing is, uh, of course, you need to have the right technology solution, which has the right cost to acquire and the right cost to maintain. One of the arguments around banking as a service 
and or certainly our platforms as a service in sort of wider context has been that you potentially can get better service levels and better security. In the case of banking as a service, is this the case? And can you provide sort of some anecdotes or some evidence to support this? You know, do you find that our banking as a service platform is a better platform in terms of security or easier to secure? Yeah, so let me first talk about the the client experience. Now, of course, financial services is uh, is a very wide spectrum. So we need to be very clear about the use cases that we are enabling with banking as a service or embedded finance. Most of the use cases that you see are around payments, around instant lending. And now we have also started seeing deposits as well as wealth and insurance offering uh, taking off in a big way. So first of all, the use case has to be correct. You know, you cannot sell complex structured products and embed it into some kind of a, uh, e-commerce journey. You can't. You just can't do that right now. And that's not what the customers are experiencing. But if I am buying a mobile phone on an e-commerce site and I want to split it into a six-month installment, instead of first charging my card, or I may not even have a credit card, I still want that installment. Um, if I can get it within a few steps uh, and giving access to the data that uh, is coming from the bureau or from the platform itself, that's an experience that I really want. So uh, first, I think we have to look at what are the use cases that uh, banking as a service should prioritize. And these are the ones where you need the transaction to happen. The same experience might be there for a seller on an e-commerce platform. They need a working capital uh, loan. Uh, and the platform has all the data to decide whether this SME is good for that working capital loan or not. Now, working with a bank, you can do that instantly on the platform. The, the, the SME doesn't need to go to a, the bank, fill up a whole lot of forms, give their income statements because you are really uh, tying in the data and the use case and you are creating this incredible experience for the users, which probably 10 years back we could not create because there was no data available, there was no technology available to do that. So that is the first thing. I think the experiences are phenomenal. The experiences will be so, uh, so good, so friction-free that there is gonna be a set of transactions which are simply not gonna happen on branches or on paper format going forward. And that's something that banks really need to be conscious of. Uh, we've, we just get used to convenience and we are not going back uh, to the traditional way, right? So uh, it's something like Google Maps, right? I mean, if you are now used to putting in your destination on the Google Maps app and getting there, you're never, never gonna stop your car or never gonna buy a paper map and plan your route. You're just mm. used to that. Right. So that's what's going to happen on certain use cases. It's not going to be everything, but yes, certain use cases is going to uh, uh, the experience is going to be just fantastic, too good uh, to go back from. Now, let's talk about security. And, and that's a very, very important aspect, because that is also a mental barrier for a lot of financial institutions to innovate in this space. Now, our experience, and I'll give you very specific examples, is that your security can actually be better than what uh, you may have from your traditional channels. And I'll give you a very simple example. Mm -hmm. In Indonesia, you can walk up to any bank branch and they will do a face-to-face -face KYC, which is great, right? 
and you may think that's really secure. What we do uh, in terms of customer onboarding digitally is not just a liveness check to ensure that the customer is a real customer, but we also take his or her data, mm -hmm. his or her picture and photographs and match it to the government database, the government utility, which does not happen at a branch. Mm. So you, I might be walking in with a fake ID and, and it, uh, it's not that difficult to produce fake IDs in a lot of developing markets. And I might get onboarded as a customer. But if you go through the digital onboarding, because we are matching your data with the original source, there is no way you can spoof it. So that's one example. The second example is on credit risk. The traditional way of uh, looking at unsecured lending, as an example, is you uh, do an income-based uh, risk assessment, and which is great. But with the digital sources now available, you have a wealth of data which is getting generated from e-commerce. There is a wealth of data which is getting generated from telcos. The bureaus have been digitized now, and you can pull that information from the bureau. And of course, if you need income verification, there are multiple ways of now validating that income and an and ability to create new income models, which did not exist without this data before. So again, not just are you making your credit risk underwriting more robust, but you are also delivering it in a friction-free way because the customer doesn't really need to produce all these documents. You're, you're uh, aggregating this data from various digital sources. So I think both in terms of customer experience and in terms of uh, the security, uh, the banking as a service business model has proven to be robust. At Breaking Banks Asia, we cover the inside stories, the emerging themes, and the exciting people participating in Asia's banking and fintech sectors. If you want to reach our dedicated and growing audience, which includes listeners from government regulators to people at the top of Asia's fintech and banking companies, reach out to Breaking Banks Asia on LinkedIn or go to www.provoke.fm. One of the reasons banks that I've spoken to that are looking down the barrel of core bank replacements and, and bank transformation and, and, and some of the legacy investments they're sitting on top of, and one of the reasons why they say they can't move or they won't move to a, a bank-as-a-service platform is because their regulators won't allow it. Do you think this is an, a real issue and do you think it'll be solved over time? So there, there are two aspects to this uh, assessment. Number one is, how are you assessing the setup of a banking as a service business model? The, the setup that we have is essentially bank has all the control it needs on all the banking processes, which means that the bank really defines the KYC standards. The bank defines the risk assessment standards. The bank holds the customer information and the bank takes critical decisions in co-creating the value proposition and the pricing of the products, which is really no different from what the bank is doing today from for any of its other channels. 
the key difference in the banking as a service setup or the business model that we propagate is that you have a front-end partner which is acquiring the customers onto this financial service and they are embedding the experience into their front-end instead of the bank's front-end. So I think that is one thing that um, we need to we need to be very clear about. They have been banking as a service business models where banks have given up control over some of these critical processes of, or have tried to outsource some of these critical processes to their partners. And that, for good reason, is now facing quite a bit of regulatory scrutiny. Um, we see this happen more in, in uh, Europe and, and US rather than uh, this part of the world. But that is something which is very critical to understand. Um, the business model that we are propagating is not about the bank giving up control, but bank employing the right technology with the right governance structure with a partner who is primarily focused on customer acquisition and creating a value prop and the experience. So uh, in, our, in our experience, we've done this in a few markets. If this is the setup, regulators are quite supportive because yeah. bank is not giving up their fiduciary responsibility. They are not giving up their regulatory responsibility. And uh, the bank is the trusted counterparty that the regulator can, can monitor, audit, and make sure that all the controls are in place. So I think it's important to kind of differentiate how you are setting up the banking as a service business model. And regulators will be supportive if the bank is taking on all the responsibilities. Do you, do you see that across the region, or do you think there will be some regulators that are holdouts for, for whatever reason, um, particularly thinking about Asia? Do you see some some reasons being particularly progressive, and do you see others being a little more uh, conservative? Let us kind of look at this from the regulator's perspective. If I am a regulator in a developing market, there are a few few uh, goals that they are trying to achieve, and one very big goal is financial inclusion. The second goal, which almost all regulators have, is financial innovation, right? And there is, we have to realize that there is competition amongst countries as well. We saw virtual banking licenses being issued in Hong Kong, and then uh, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand is looking to issue the same now. So there is uh, competition for innovation as well between countries and regulators. So if you look at banking as a service, it ticks off two critical boxes, which are maybe KPIs for the regulators itself. One is financial inclusion, because today as a bank, I may not have the appetite to spend my acquisition cost on very low ticket customers. But if I tie up with a large e-commerce and I scale down my acquisition and maintenance costs, then we can really go after the long tail of mass market users, which were never really coming into the financial, the traditional uh, mainstream banking system, right? So the regulator is looking at financial inclusion and banking as a service is a really good option uh, to get to those uh, customers who have not been included in the mainstream financial services yet. And the second thing is, of course, it's a really innovative business model. Um, and as long as the bank has control of the technology and governance, 
like I said, I think I don't think there is any market in Asia where the regulator will not be supportive. Um, everyone will be. The, the problem is that, you know, sometimes the, the innovation kind of extends itself, tries to extend itself beyond uh, regulation. The innovation becomes very innovative. And that's where we see regulators really stepping up and pulling things back. In, in a world where one bank backing a, a bank as a service provider is sitting on the data of millions of customers, what, what could you do with that sort of insight? Is there, a, is there a concern that people should have around data and the, the level of data insight that a, a bank as a service platform might have? Yeah, so um, again, there are two, two ways to look at this. One is that the uh, business model that we are proposing the data actually sits with the bank. So yes, the bank can use the Audax platform and the Audax platform is uh, built for very large scale data. It's built for scalability, but the data ownership is with the bank. So the banking as a service provider in, in our case really doesn't do much with the data. Uh, unless there is uh, a monetization opportunity which the bank sees and Audax can help the bank uh, monetize that data, right? But for the bank itself, there is there are a host of opportunities. First of all, let's say there is a bank which is tied up with the largest e-commerce and the largest ride-hailing company in the country. We are talking about millions of customers who have gone through this these services and the bank has their risk assessment and their KYC information for all of these customers. Of course, the first use case would be to cross-sell other services of the bank, which they are not offering to banking as a service. So that is a massive, massive opportunity. But beyond that, they, the, the opportunities are really, really immense. For instance, if I have the credit uh, assessment for all of these customers, I can actually create a monetizing opportunity where a third party which wants to onboard the same customer can take the credit risk decision from the bank, mm. right? And that can essentially add to the, the revenue stream for the bank. The same can be done for KYC. I mean, I'm just picking up a few use cases. Not to mention that anywhere else that this customer, any other channel that the customer is uh, uh, coming to the same bank, this customer will experience a existing to bank user journey and you would they would be able to avail of products within a few clicks rather than going through the entire kyc and risk assessment so the opportunity is is fantastic now in terms of the security like i said in the business model that we are focusing on the bank is the custodian of the data so the same governance and security standards are applied that are applied to the customers coming from any other channel of the bank. So I, I think if, uh, from that perspective, uh, banks are very well uh, attuned to meeting the uh, data governance standards of the local as well as international regulators and their own standards are pretty high, right? So I think on that perspective, we are on very solid ground. Do you think open banking will shift the landscape for, for Baz and does it create more opportunity for you? So let, let's first try to understand the subtle differentiation between open banking and BAS. Open banking is about 
the bank's existing customers being able to one easily transact on third party platforms and two with their consent able to share their data with third party platforms which can offer them value added services banking as a service goes way beyond this because banking as a service is essentially creating financial products on third party services and are becoming a major source for new to bank customers for the bank opening up completely new segments getting access to a completely uh, new data set that the banks never had access to so i think we need to kind of first understand the differentiation i would say uh, the objectives of open banking and banking as a service are slightly different from the bank's uh, perspective now uh, whether it's going to help banking as a service i think absolutely it will and i'll give you a very specific example again in 2021 if i'm not mistaken uh, bank indonesia introduced an open banking standard which is called snap now what snap does is it clearly defines the api governance and the api standards with which banks can offer open banking now the same apis can also be used for embedding these financial products into the digital ecosystems which banking as a service offers so it's very clear and very well defined governance standard for open banking which is also helping banking as a service so uh, i think uh, a clear uh, regulatory standard really really helps the industry uh, whether it's a use case across uh, bas or open banking so it will be helpful Thank you. This is a definitely a space to watch. Do you have any sort of final thoughts or insights you'd like to close the show with today? Yeah. So, um I think the the first thing is that the executives within the financial services industry have to embrace that there are certain fundamental changes which are happening around us. And we have to be prepared for open banking for banking as a service uh for innovations in digital banking and if we are not the banks who get this right now are going to thrive and survive uh, over the next you know 10 20 30 years and uh, i'm predicting that there will be quite a few banks which will simply not find retail and sme banking viable if they don't adapt to these changes within the next 5 to 10 years so i think that consciousness is very important if you are uh, a leader in a bank today this is something that you should be really really thinking about uh the second thing is i think we need to be really open to the innovations which are now happening there are new opportunities which are coming from artificial intelligence to to blockchain we need to be aware of what are these uh changes that are happening uh in our marketplace and how we can adapt them to make better experiences for for our users and i think uh finally it's probably good if you keep tuning in back into breaking banks to keep track of what's happening <laughs> thank you very much in, in asia and as well as europe um so you are uh, on top of uh you know what you need to do in your own financial institutions 
Look, thank you so much for joining me today, uh, Sachin. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is a topic that I could talk about for quite some time, and I, I think you've you've uh, provided a lot of really useful insights into uh, banking as a service, into the regulatory sort of frameworks and, and the considerations, and I think it's going to be a very exciting uh, space to continue to watch closely. So thank you very much today. Thank you very much. Thank you for putting this together. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.